so tonight I want to start off by talking about um, laws. Why laws aren't great. Rules, laws. Um, we've been hearing a lot, uh, if you've been paying attention to the news at all, lots of talk about abortion laws, uh, immigration laws, gun control laws. And it's, it's I've been thinking about um, how laws don't, <laughs> they only help one side of the problem. Let's take gun control, for example. Um, Laws surrounding gun control can make it more difficult for someone who wants to misuse a weapon to get one, which protects, which can protect innocent people. That's a big deal. That's important. But that law does nothing to affect or change the heart of the people that are looking to break laws. It doesn't do anything to address the issues of a person who um, is struggling so much that they would go out and harm others with a weapon, right? Laws only affect our behavior. Laws rarely affect, uh, or rarely to never change people's hearts. I want you to keep that in mind as we're going through um, what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, I'm actually very excited about this talk. I realized I have never spoken about Pentecost before. Um, which we're going to get into, but it's like a big deal in the uh, yearly church calendar. It's a big event that happened. Um, but I, I learned something new about Pentecost this week that I'm very excited to tell you about. I get to talk about the Old Testament. I get to talk about New Testament. I get to talk about church history. Uh, I get to nerd out for a little while. Hang with me because I promise that it's all going to make sense. I think it's all going to tie together at the end. We're going to find out together, but um, I'm going to have a great time. So you at least should, right? Thank you. Okay. So as I said, tonight we're talking about Pentecost. Pentecost is the story that takes place in Acts 2. After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, um, it's this, this scene where the Holy Spirit shows up in a new way. But Pentecost, that, where we get that name from, was actually already a Jewish festival, and it, it's what, we're going to get into the story here, but all of the people of, of Israel are gathered back together in Jerusalem, just like they were during Passover, uh, to observe this festival together when the Holy Spirit decides to show up in this new way. So knowing about what that festival is, this festival of Pentecost, is probably important as it's the backdrop for the story that we're talking about tonight. Um, at some point... This is like my caveat for the evening. At some point, this festival of Pentecost, some point in Jewish history, it became associated with um, the story of Moses receiving the law in Exodus 32. If you remember from last fall, we talked about Exodus. I'm going to briefly recap that story for you so you don't have to just be like, yeah, Exodus 32, I know what that is. Uh, if you asked me what Exodus 32 was, I would have a hard time remembering, so I don't expect you to remember that. Um, but... So, so somewhere along the tradition of this festival, it became associated with this other story from Exodus 32. Exactly when this tradition formed that, that associates and combines sort of this Pentecost festival with Moses getting the law, when that happened, when that conflation happened, is a matter of debate. Some people argue that it happened way later than the story of Acts, some people think that it happened around or before the story of Acts. It's not settled. It's contested. I just want to acknowledge that because as you're going to see, 
I, I for our purpose tonight, um, I'm going to be assuming that the people in our story are celebrating this festival thinking about Moses receiving the law. That's going to be important. Um, I think the parallels between these two stories of the Holy Spirit coming and, and Moses receiving the law are, are um, just too, there's too many of them and they're too explicit to deny, in my opinion. Uh, so we have the story in the New Testament around like Zero, uh, 33, 30 to 33 AD that echoes back this story thousands of years beforehand in Exodus. We have this New Testament story that echoes an Old Testament story. I'm not sure I'd ever seen this before, um, but in preparing the talk for this week, I, I stumbled across this whole theory about this and it blew my mind. And so I'm excited to walk through it with you. So let's rewind time and let's go back to Exodus 32. If you remember, the story of Exodus is about um, the people of Israel after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, fleeing Egypt. The culminating event of Israel getting out of Egypt is what's called Passover, which was the 10th plague, which um, basically was all the firstborn of the Egyptian people were killed. And that finally gets Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. They leave, they go out into the wilderness and God beforehand told Moses to take the people back to where he had seen God in the burning bush, to Mount Sinai. He gets there, he brings the people back there around 50 days after Passover. 50 days is where Pentecost comes from, penta meaning 50. 50 days after Passover, they all get to the foot of the mountain and at some point, there are these very loud, terrifying sounds that are described as thunder and, and trumpets. God descends um, onto the top of the mountain in fire. Fire you're going to see throughout the Old Testament. When heaven and earth meet, God's presence manifests in fire. That's why the burning bush was on fire. God's fire on top of this uh, mountain. The people of Israel were led through the wilderness at night by a pillar of fire. Um, God's presence is symbolized in the tabernacle, which is like the mobile temple, and also in the temple uh, through fire. Anytime you see fire, that is the presence of God manifest. Not anytime, but anytime where God is speaking and fire is present. So uh, God is manifest in this fire on top of this mountain. The people are, all, people are all told to stay back and only Moses is invited up. And God uh, gives Moses the law which is the 10 commandments and a bunch of other stuff you can read in Exodus 20 through like 31. Um, he gives him the law for the people to keep in order to maintain a covenant with him. But God uh, takes his sweet time and the people at the bottom of the mountain start to get really impatient. And they're like, Moses might be dead for all we know. So um, let's, I don't know, we're bored. This is what bored people do. Let's make a God out of gold and let's worship it. And everyone else is like, that sounds like a great idea. So they make a golden calf and they start worshiping it. And they have this big festival, this big drunken orgy is how it's described. Moses comes down from the mountain, sees that this is happening, throws the stone tablets on the ground that the law had been written on, which breaks them, which God makes new ones. It's fine. Um, he, uh, grinds the uh, 
idol that they made out of gold to dust. He makes people drink it, which is like a whole thing, a whole story. Um, And then he has the Levites, the priests, go throughout the people of Israel and kill the worst offenders of this whole idol worshiping thing. In total, 3,000 people are killed. This is not a fun story. It's pretty weird. It's pretty intense. Uh, It's bloody. It's not fun. But to recap, 50 days after Passover, we've got these loud sounds. We've got fire with the presence of God in it, uh, enabling Moses to deliver the law to all of Israel. We've got ecstatic praise and worship of false gods. We've got drunk people and we've got 3,000 people killed. Okay, that's just the quick recap of that fun story. Fast forward now to Acts 2. This is thousands of years later, um, right after, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, Uh, 40 days after Jesus' ascension into heaven. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, which says this. When the day of Pentecost came, that's the festival we're talking about, They were all together in one place. They is all of Jesus' disciples and his first followers. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Right off the bat here, we have... uh, fire. We've got loud sound and we've got fire, God's presence coming in fire. Remember what I said about fire showing up, the place where heaven and earth meet. God's presence is manifest in fire. The Holy Spirit here is manifest in what looks like tongues of fire coming down to uh, rest on each of Jesus's followers. In the Old Testament, it was a pillar of fire that came down just to talk to Moses. Here, it is on every single one of Jesus' followers. The place where heaven and earth now meet is in every follower of Christ. And that could be the whole talk. And we could just talk about that the whole rest of the time, which we probably should someday. But that's just one point I want to make about this crazy story. We're going to continue on. Um, so the Holy Spirit comes and rests on them and they're all, they all start ecstatically worshiping God and they start to speak languages that they didn't previously know how to speak. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. This is picking back up in verse five. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? This is sort of a slight on Galileans because they were like working class people. They were fishermen. They were uh, carpenters. They were uneducated. So the last people you would expect to be speaking multiple languages are these people. Also, I don't know how they could tell just by looking at them that they were Galileans. But apparently, Jesus' people had a very specific look to them that everyone else just knew. Anyway, uh, Parth- Parthi- Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. I should have practiced saying all these weird words. Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, 
Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Now, I don't know how things used to be in ancient Rome, but I don't know of any circumstance where drinking too much makes you suddenly be able to speak different languages or be able to, uh, it, it doesn't usually unlock abilities in my experience. Maybe you've experienced differently, and if you have, I would love to talk to you about that. Um, so what, what on earth is going on here? Why is there this long list of all of these different nations? Something you need to keep in mind when you're reading the Bible is um, they are writing this out by hand on parchment that is very precious, very scarce, and uh, they have to carry this around everywhere, so they have to keep it short. Anytime you see this much detail, it's a big deal. So to understand what's going on here, we're going to talk a little bit of history about ancient Israel just real quick. A thousand years before this takes place, roughly, Israel is one kingdom. There's a civil war and they split into two. There's uh, Israel in the north, which is the 10, ten of the 12 tribes, and then Judea in the south, um, which is two of the tribes. Jerusalem is in Judea. About uh, 200 years later, the northern kingdom is conquered and is exiled. And uh, the residents are taken out and, and spread out throughout these other countries. About 150 years later, the southern kingdom of Judea is also conquered and also exiled. 50 to 70 years later, a portion of those people from the southern kingdom of those two tribes come back to rebuild the, the kingdom of Judea. And that is what currently exists um, in Jesus's lifetime. It is now a vassal state of Rome, but it is this rebuilt nation of Judea. Here's what is important to know. After Israel divides a thousand years before Jesus's life, or 900 years before Jesus's life, Israel is never whole again as a geopolitical entity. They are spread out all over after the exile. It's called the diaspora, the, the like spreading out of people all across the nation surrounding Israel. There's this promise in Israel's, uh, in the Bible, that the Messiah who will come will reunite the people of Israel together. And everyone who hears that thinks that they're talking, that the promise is for a new geopolitical, literal kingdom and country of Israel to be recreated out of all of the uh, people who've been spread out all over the place. These nations that are listed in Acts represent everywhere that the exiled Jews have spread out to. Some of the people that he'd mentioned, uh, some of these people groups have been extinct for hundreds of years, but they were some of the first groups that absorbed exiled Jews. What's going on here, the purpose of this, why he's writing this is this is a picture of Israel reunited. Israel in this moment of Pentecost is reunited in Christ. When he, uh, when he gave the law back in Exodus 32, God spoke to all of Israel through Moses. Here again, God is addressing all of Israel through Jesus's disciples. Okay, we're going to keep going. Verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd who had just, some of them had just said, these people must be drunk. They're speaking languages they don't know. 
That is very good wine. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. (laughs) It's an important detail. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then Peter goes on to give this speech where he explains that what the people just witnessed was the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all of God's people. The Holy Spirit that God had been promising them since the Old Testament. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was made possible through Jesus's life and death and resurrection. Because as Jesus, uh, Peter argues to this crowd, um, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, the, the same Jesus that many of you were just clamoring to put to death just 50 days ago, is the Messiah who has reconciled our sins to God and made it possible for the place where heaven and earth meet to be the hearts of every single person who follows Jesus. I skipped over a lot, but picking back up in verse 37. When the people heard this, when they heard all of Peter's arguments, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Did you catch that? How many? 3,000? How many people died in chapter 32 of Exodus? 3,000. So in Exodus, 50 days after Passover, there's these loud sounds, there's fire. Uh, God enables Moses to deliver the law to all of Israel, or at least that's the plan before he smashes them on the ground. Uh, Moses goes down to find ecstatic worship, praise and worship of false gods. He finds drunk people. 3,000 people are killed. In Acts, again, 50 days after Passover, there's loud sounds, there's fire, there's ecstatic worship and praise of God. There's people accused of being drunk. Um, a person is enabled to address all of Israel, and, and that's Peter, and, and to give them the message of the gospel, and 3,000 people are saved. When the law was given, 3,000 people were put to death. When the Spirit shows up, 3,000 people are given new life. This is an illustration of how the law produces death, but the Spirit produces life. On the day that the Jews from around the world are gathered in Jerusalem to reaffirm their commitment to the law of Moses, the Holy Spirit descends on, on, Holy Spirit descends on them offering something so much better than the law, offering the gospel, the promise of new life to all who believe in Jesus. It's not a coincidence that Paul in several places, but specifically in second Corinthians three writes that the law brings death but the Holy Spirit brings life. Here's the difference between the law and the spirit. Uh, As I talked about um, when we first started, all the law can do is point out what you're doing wrong. All the law can do is, is tell you when you've messed up, tell you where the line is between doing what's right and doing what's wrong. 
All the law addresses is your behavior. It's all external change, if anything. And typically, people only obey the law to not be punished. Or in this case, people obey the law to earn God's favor, to be good people, to be the people of God. Laws are typically adhered to um, because we, want, uh, we don't want what breaking the law brings to us. You usually don't keep the law because it's what you want to do. I don't maintain the speed limit because I'd like to. I maintain the speed limit because I don't want to get a ticket and I don't want to pay money, right? When it comes to the law, we can never be good enough because we're never actually changed. It's all just behavior modification. It doesn't address the underlying issues going on in here. It doesn't address our hearts. Uh, take take uh, the law to not lust, for example. The law says don't lust. Okay, but what do I do about this heart of mine that is hell-bent on lusting? The law says just don't do it. Okay, but like I don't want to, but like there's this part of me that I seem to not be able to control that just is hell-bent on breaking this law. And the law is like, yeah, but just don't do it. <laughs> We all know this struggle, right? Maybe it, not specifically to, uh, to lust for you, but some thing that you know is wrong, that it, you don't want to do that thing, but it feels like your heart just keeps coming back to it, and you don't know how to change that. Paul writes about this. He says, my heart goes after the things that I know are wrong, and the things I know are right, my heart doesn't long for. Because the law brings death, but the Spirit brings life. The gift of the spirit made possible because of Jesus Christ is a transformed heart. It transforms us from the inside out. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, um, this beautiful passage that is one of my favorites in the Bible that I'm going to read to you. It's not going to be up on the screen because I want you to just listen and not try to bother following along. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing. When we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Jesus Christ. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the work he has gotten ready for us to do, the work we had better be doing. Keeping laws doesn't fix our broken hearts. Keeping laws doesn't deal with the sin and the wounds that drive our behavior. Laws can't fix that. Only the Holy Spirit can. 
It's not keeping the law that delivers us, as we just read. While we were lawbreakers, while we were sinners, while we were broken, while we were dead in our sin, God makes us alive in Christ and pours out uh, his Holy Spirit on us, transforming our hearts, transforming us, recreating us from the inside out. That's, that's the message. <laughs> like the way that this works is not doing the right things. The way this works is by surrendering your brokenness to God and allowing him to change your heart. But we still get so hung up on just checking off and keeping, do, making sure that we're doing the right thing. That's what's going to make, that we get so convinced that that's what's going to make us good people. That's what's going to make God love us. When the truth is God already loves us and has already dealt with what we're trying to accomplish. We can't change our hearts by trying to be good people. Our hearts can only change when we surrender them to the Holy Spirit. So really the, the, the takeaway tonight, you've probably heard before, but I think it's something that we need reminded of every once in a while, is just stop trying to be good enough. Stop masking your damaged heart with good behavior. That leads to death. Receive the gift of Christ and let the spirit transform you from the inside out, breathing new life into you. It's the only way that we grow into the people God created us to be. We don't grow up by, by pretending to be good people. We only grow up by the Spirit renewing and regenerating and transforming our hearts when we accept that we need God's help to do it. When we accept Christ as our Savior. The only way we grow into the people that God created us to be is by allowing the Spirit to transform us. Uh, the only way that we join the work that God has gotten ready for us to do which is bring heaven to earth to incite love, to reduce suffering and increase joy. Only the Holy Spirit can heal and regenerate your broken heart. Receiving that gift is up to you. And my deep and sincere hope is that, that you will accept it and that together we will join in that legacy of that community that started in that, on that day of Pentecost. joining the legacy of being, walking, and talking intersections between heaven and earth through which God is renewing all things. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you, um, you, don't, uh, you don't wait for us to get ourselves cleaned up. You don't wait for us to adhere to laws perfectly before you love us. You don't make us... Um, force ourselves into shapes uh, to please you. God, you love us so much that you, you meet us where we're at. You save us and you transform our hearts. Without you at best, we can try to, to be good people, but our hearts still want our hearts still tend toward evil. But God, thank you for the gift of the Spirit who transforms our hearts into wanting what you want, into wanting goodness and light and love. 
God, I pray that you would continue to pour out your Holy Spirit on each one of us here. God, I pray that you would transform us from the inside out. I pray that we would all be able to own our brokenness and our unrelenting need of of your love and grace. God, I pray that not a single person in this room wastes any more time trying to earn your love. but that every single person here has an overwhelming sense of how much you already love them because of who you created them to be, because of who they truly are. Underneath all of the sin and brokenness and woundedness, you see your perfect creation. Thank you, God. We love you. Amen.